If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to thank you for being here. My name is John Huff. I'm one of the lay elders here at Covenant Life Church, and it is my privilege to have the opportunity to preach God's Word to you this morning. We would love to have the opportunity to get to know you better. So I would invite you to come back in the coming weeks. Next week, Charlie will be preaching the summary of First Timothy. And then the following week, our lead pastor, Justin Perry, will be starting his study through the book of Ruth. And also that same Sunday, so two weeks from today, there will be a guest reception after the service, uh, an opportunity for you to get to know us better, for us to get to know you better, and we would love nothing more. Also, there will be some of us uh, pastors outside after the service, and uh, if you would stop by and allow us the opportunity to uh, get to know you then, we would appreciate as well. I cannot adequately explain how much our life changed for the better when God led us here to Covenant Life. I still remember the day. It was April 17th, 2016. We showed up here not knowing a single soul. We walked into this main hall and it was just full of strangers. And now we walk in each Sunday to the beautiful faces of 175 members of our family. And all that we enjoy here as a covenant community of believers is made possible because of how Christ promised to build his church through the preaching of the gospel. After his resurrection, Christ walked this earth for 40 days before ascending to heaven. And during that time, he repeatedly gave what we call the Great Commission. Matthew records it in the final verses of his gospel as go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is what we wanna be about as a church. This is what we wanna give our lives to, fulfilling the great commission, making disciples. If that's our calling, what is our equipping? How do we do it? Well, primarily we do it with the word of God. We became his disciples by believing in Christ as he is revealed in God's word. And then we grow as his disciples by learning what he has commanded us in his word. That is why we pray the word and I, I hope you hear that, that the prayers that are prayed are saturated with the word of God. That is why that we sing the word. And when you pay attention to the lyrics, may it be clear as well that what we are singing truly is God's word. And when we preach, it's not our opinions or our perspectives. We don't even choose the subjects. It's the word that sets the agenda. It's the word that determines the message. I pray that you hear that week in and week out, the word of God being heralded from this church and from this pulpit. So when we look at the word, we see several themes that come up over and over again. There are certain things that Jesus specifically spoke about often, like faith and repentance, heaven and hell, prayer, love. But it may surprise you that what Jesus spoke about most often frequently was money and possessions. Look at Luke 12 with me as an example 
Luke 12 is going to be the foundation for what we will see later on as we look in 1 Timothy 6. And you will hear the words of Christ in Luke 12 echoed by Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So Luke 12, here's just an example of how often and what Jesus has to say about money. Starts off someone in the crowd in verse 13 said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want you to take note of that. I want you to underline that in your thinking this morning. Our lives do not consist in what we own, what we have. This kind of thinking of covetousness, of our life consisting in what we have, leads to this example that Jesus would say of the rich fool, who God would say to him, fool this night, verse 20, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That means when you're leaving, it doesn't matter how much you accumulated and how big your barns were. When you leave this earth, you leave it all behind. And to live as if this is life and accumulating possessions is to live as a fool. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's a ditch to fall into with riches of coveting more, of thinking our life consists in them, of being stingy towards God and rich towards ourselves. Here's another ditch to avoid that Jesus speaks of, and that is being anxious about money. One looks to money for pride. The other looks to money for security. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat. Do not be anxious about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Skip down to verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then listen to the tenderness in Jesus' voice here. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be anxious about possessions. Don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about the future. Your heavenly father knows that you need these things and he's faithful to provide. It's his pleasure to give to you and to give to you the greatest gift, the gift of the kingdom of God through faith in his son. So what should we do instead of being anxious about money, instead of seeking to covet and to find our life in the abundance of our possessions? Well, verses 33 and 34 of Luke 12. And once again, we're gonna see this play out in 1 Timothy 6. Jesus says, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So why did Jesus speak so much about money? Well, it's an undeniable fact of the link between our faith and our finances. And what we do with our treasure 
reveals where our hearts are at. And it also reveals what our hope is set on. And Jesus wants us to release this tight grip that we tend to have on the things of this world and instead to set our hope fully in him and then to be a conduit of his grace to others. And it's not just Jesus. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the authors of the New Testament, likewise keeps coming back to the same subject too. Case in point was two weeks ago when we heard Bob preach about the contentment of a godly man who avoids the soul-destructing sin of loving money and desiring to be rich. We hear the words of Christ about take care, be on your guard against all covetousness because our life doesn't consist in these things. And to pursue them is to not pursue godliness, but it is to pursue a path that will lead you away from the faith. So in verses 6 to 10, 1 Timothy 6, Paul's writing about those who want to be rich. And then in the verses we're looking at today, about those who actually are rich. His words echo the teaching of Jesus. Before we see these words, let me ask you, what are you tempted to set your hope on? What are you tempted to set your hope on? For the teenagers among us, are you tempted to set your hope on approval from your peers? That is a unstable perch to set your hopes on. For the unmarried here, are you setting your hope on marriage? For the childless, are you setting your hope on having kids? For those with children, are you setting your hope on having good kids? For the businessman, are you setting your hope on climbing the ladder at work, building this reputation of a successful man? The question of what you are tempted to set your hope on is really what are you looking to for your identity, for your happiness, for your security? Where are you looking? And in this passage, Paul is waving the caution flag to avoid the ditch that so many have fallen into. Don't look to money for your security, but instead set your hope on God. Don't look to money for your happiness. Instead, show that Jesus is who you treasure most by storing up your treasure in heaven. Each day, the world is preaching a sermon, and it's longer than the 55-minute the sermon you normally hear here each week. And this sermon that the world is preaching influences us more than we would like to think. The world is bombarding us with messages about money, that it defines our identity, that it dictates our happiness, that it determines our security. But Jesus and the rest of scripture is preaching a different sermon. And we will have to swim upstream, if you will, against the current of this world in order to follow Christ. We've had several birthdays in our family recently. Our oldest turned 16 last week. Our youngest turned seven this week. Had another birthday thrown in there as well. And so we try and stretch out the birthday celebration beyond just one day by trying to come up with fun things we can do for the kids throughout their birthday week. And one of the fun things that our kids really enjoy is going on an escalator. 
I don't fully understand why. It doesn't seem that exciting to me, but our kids love escalators. And as I watch them go up and down the escalator, I, I see a spiritual analogy here of how you can move without moving. Meaning that if you do not go against the stream, you will be carried by the current. And this world is pulling us down with this message, this false gospel of looking to money. And if we are not fighting against that with the truth of God's word, if we're not actively going against the grain, then we will be conformed to this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And in doing so, we will build our houses on sand instead of building them on the rock. Oh, I pray that we would see today more clearly than ever before how the gospel changes everything. And it definitely changes how we view money. May all who look at our lives and watch how we handle money be able to see clearly that Christ is our greatest treasure. If this is gonna happen, it's gonna take more than just the preaching of God's word. It's gonna take the Holy Spirit taking this word and applying it to our hearts and doing the work that only he can of conforming us into the image of Christ. So let us go to him now and ask him to do just this. Father, we pray to this end. We pray that you would so use your word this morning in the hearts and in the lives of your people to bring about the gospel change that you intend, that we would not look to money for our identity or our security or our happiness, that we would fight against the messaging of this world that says to pursue wealth because in it you will find life. And we say we will not. We want to take care, beware of covetousness because our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. May we be like the servants whose master left him when he went on a journey and entrusted to them his property, that when you return of all that you've given to us, when we give an account of our stewardship, may we hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. God, help us today to follow your word in preparation for the day that we will stand before you in order to hear these words from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a note taker, the outline is very simple. It, all the points are drawn straight from the text. First of all, it's set your hope on God from verse 17. Set your hope on God. Secondly, from verses 18 and 19, store your treasure in heaven. Store your treasure in heaven. And then lastly, from verses 20 and 21, guard the gospel. So set your hope on God, store your treasure in heaven, and then guard the gospel. So verse 17, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In reading verses 15 and 16 last week, uh, when Justin preached, it sounded like Paul was about to land the plane with that beautiful doxology that he gave. I mean, he even uses the word amen 
at the conclusion of that doxology. But like a preacher who says in closing and then keeps on going a little bit longer, Paul has more he wants to say to Timothy and more that we need to hear. He just addressed those who want to be rich. Now he has a word for those who are rich. He says, as for the rich in this present age. So when you hear that, when you hear him address those who are rich, who do you think he's talking to? Who comes to mind? Are you thinking of the Jeff Bezos of the world or the Warren Buffetts? But I would encourage you not to. Don't think he's simply referring to the super rich. You may be tempted to say, well, it's not me. We, we fancy like Applebee's on a date night. I got you. But the reality is the large majority of us in this room are at varying degrees of wealth that historically speaking can only be described as rich. I want you to think about your morning today. Things that I would assume not a single person in here gave a moment's thought to. When you turned on the lights this morning, when you went to the bathroom to brush your teeth and you turned on the water faucet, when you went to your closet and looked at your wardrobe of all these clothes to find something that you wanted to wear today. And then at some point, I imagine you went to the kitchen and opened up the fridge to find your breakfast, what you were going to have for breakfast. And those simple little things, turning on the electricity, turning on the water, looking at your wardrobe to pick out something today and opening up the refrigerator to see what was gonna be for breakfast. I wanna tell you about a people that I know in Chandida. Chandida is in Togo, in West Africa. It's where we were missionaries for six and a half years. And in Chandida, this village out in the bush is where we planted our first church. And the people of Chandida have never done those four things that you just did this morning without giving a moment's thought to. The vast majority of them have never turned on a light switch. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They don't even have clean water. Their clothing is so limited that you can remember people by what they wear because they so rarely change their clothes. And for food, when they pray, give us this day our daily bread, it has a different meaning for them. Because for them, I never knew a single Togolese that had a refrigerator. So we may be tempted to compare ourselves to those around us and think, well, I'm not as well off as he is or as she is. And, and look at this rich person. But Paul would say, considering all that we have been given, this applies to us. We are rich at varying degrees of wealth, but beyond a doubt, rich. And the first thing to notice about these verses is that Paul does not direct the rich to divest themselves of all their wealth. On the contrary, God is a generous father and he wants his children to enjoy the good gifts that he gives. So let me caution you to avoid looking at someone else who has the financial means to, to do things that you're unable to do and to have a critical eye and to think poorly of them, to think that somehow they are bad stewards because they enjoy things that you're not yet able to enjoy. Maybe you're looking on social media and you see them taking a vacation and think, I can't take a vacation. But your heavenly father in his grace chooses to give good gifts 
with the desire that they be enjoyed. But so scripture is not calling us to exchange materialism for asceticism, right? That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is about, not about rejecting God's good gifts, but rather the redemptive use of them. So with wise pastoral care, Paul doesn't cater to the rich, but neither does he scorn them. Rather, he gives them negative and positive instruction. First, he warns the rich of the dangers of wealth, and then he lays down the duties of the wealthy. So the first danger that we see here to which the wealthy are exposed, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. This is the age-old problem of wealth. Those who have it tend to be puffed up, haughty, high-minded, arrogant, prideful. Moses warned the children of Israel of just this thing in Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 18. I want you to listen to how God richly provides all things for his people to enjoy, and then how they're tempted to pridefully pat themselves on the back for what they have. The Bible says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, Deuteronomy 8, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Verse 11, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. The problem wasn't their wealth. It was how they responded to it. The pride in their hearts, thinking that it was because of them, not realizing it was because of the grace of God. Just like he did for the Israelites, it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So whatever you have is because of God's grace to you. So don't be prideful, be humble, give him thanks. He gives and he takes away. And he calls us to set our hope, not on riches, but on him. Riches, they come and they go. But God is our rock, the covenant keeper, the faithful one. Oh, with wealth comes this tendency to be prideful. And with wealth also comes the temptation to seek security in our money. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. 
money doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring security. And when we look to money to do these things, it will always leave us wanting more. The author of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verses five and six, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the promise of the presence of Christ that gives us the security that we long for. And if we look for it anywhere else, we will be disappointed. To foolishly set our hopes on riches, to look for money, for security is to live like an unbeliever. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. So instead, don't live like the unbeliever. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Set your hope on God. Don't look to riches for your security. Look to your father. Trust him to provide. Don't be anxious. Rest in his sovereign care. You'll be able to say with Paul that God richly provides everything needed for your joy. So the issue isn't whether you have riches or not, but rather what you do with them. Set your hope on God. What does it look like for somebody to do that? What does it look like for somebody to set their hope on God? How do they handle their resources then? Well, they do this. Verses 18 and 19. They store their treasure in heaven. They store their treasure in heaven. I want you to see this. If you are not storing your treasure in heaven, it means you're not setting your hope on God. The dangers of being rich, pride, looking to money for security. Now we see the duties of being rich. Paul asked, you want to be rich in something? How about this? Be rich in good works. Being rich isn't about getting, it's about giving. When we think about godliness in this passage, 1 Timothy 6, earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain. Think about that word godly. What does it mean to be godly? Well, it means to be like God. It means to imitate his character. To, to, he calls us, be holy as I am holy. We are to live like our Father, like our Savior. And we can't be godly if we're not generous, because God is generous. Verse 17, put our hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. John Stott says of this passage, against materialism, Paul sets simplicity of lifestyle. Against asceticism, he sets gratitude for God's gifts. Against covetousness, he sets contentment with what we have. And against selfishness, he sets generosity in imitation of God. So the biblical antidote to materialism is not asceticism. It's extravagant, sacrificial giving. You know, Paul tends to repeat himself when he's trying to drive home a point. Maybe the clearest example of this would be Romans 3. 
you're familiar when Paul is stressing how we are all sinful. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. And you're like, all right, I got the idea. None righteous. But he repeats himself, changing the words up. No, not one. Got it, Paul. No one understands. Okay, it makes sense. No one seeks for God. Uh, apparently not. All have turned aside, right? He's just repeating himself, changing up the words. No one does good, not even one. He drives home his point, and he does the same thing in this passage. He's trying to communicate to us what we're called to do with our riches, and he's just using a, a different set of words each time to do so. He starts off in verse 18, they are to do good. Do good. What does that mean? Like helping little old ladies cross the street? No. I mean, sure, but that's not the context here. That's not the point of the passage. Calling the rich to do good is calling them to do good with their riches. The verb is found only one other time in the New Testament. And it's where it describes God doing good by giving rain for crops, Acts 14, 17. So he says they're to do good. Then he says to be rich in good works. So this is building on the idea of doing good with your riches, but being rich in good works. So the question is, how much good should we do with our money? And the answer is a lot. Be rich in doing good works. Justin touched on this last week. Please don't misunderstand the role of good works in a believer's life. Don't view good works in a negative light, thinking that this isn't something that we are called to do, just the opposite. It is what we are called to do. It, turn with me briefly to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you're with us this morning, not a Christian, maybe visiting, checking out a church, you're not quite sure about your own salvation. More importantly than anything you hear today about how you should handle wealth or anything else, would be to clearly understand what the word of God has to say about your soul and how one can be saved. It says, in our state outside of Christ, we are dead men walking. We are lost in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. But God, with his great love, has made us alive together with Christ. How did that happen? How have believers been made alive together with Christ, taken from this state of death to life? Well, they have done so by grace through faith. Meaning we are saved by good works, but they're not ours. They're Christ's. Through his perfect life, sinless life, through his substitutionary death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, he achieved for us what we could never achieve for ourselves. And he gives us this great exchange where he takes our sin on him and gives us his righteousness. And we 
embrace this and we receive this by faith alone. We, we can add nothing to it. That's why he says in verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why is it? Why, why can we have no part to contribute to our own salvation? Well, it's because God wants and shall receive all the glory for it. He says, this is not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We have nothing to stand before God and to say, for this reason I am saved. But rather we wholly give him the credit for our salvation, realizing it is only by the works of Christ that we receive by faith that we now have his righteousness. So what do we do now? Well, verse 10, our good works are not how we get saved, but it's what we are to do once we are saved. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are to be rich in good works. We're not saved by them, but we are saved for them. So he says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, then just repeating himself with different words, to be generous. Paul wants the members of Christ's church with financial means not to be slow or begrudging, but to be quick to give and to give liberally. When you consider the work of the ministry, when you consider the needs of the church, when you consider the spread of the gospel, the question you ask yourself ought not to be, what do I have to give? That is, that's not generosity. And generosity is, is definitely not determined by moving decimal points on a pay stub. No, new covenant giving is a call to joyful, sacrificial, and generous giving. I wonder, do you let anyone walk with you in this area? Is there like a stay back sign over this part of your heart? Uh, trespassers will be shot. I, I beg of you, bring a Christian brother or sister in. Open up with them about this matter of your heart. Let, let them see how you handle your riches. And how does that measure up to this call to be generous? And then we see the fourth way he phrases this, willing to share. So the idea is not being stingy, but open-handed, focused on others. What's the result of all of this giving? Doing good with our riches, being rich in good works, being generous with our money, ready to share our wealth. What's the result of this? Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, we won't turn there, the same thing about storing up treasures for ourselves. And when we hear that, we might be tempted to think, don't store up treasure. But that's only half of it. Don't store up treasure on earth. But there's a command to store up treasure. It's not a recommendation, an invitation, a suggestion. It is a command, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So we have these two choices. 
And, and I fear that sometimes we think they're competing where you have one or the other, but you can't have both. The idea of living for your own good or living for God's glory. As if to do one would mean you can't do the other. And God's word says just the opposite. This is Christian hedonism. Your good and God's glory are two tracks on the same train. <clears throat> Storing up earthly treasure isn't just wrong, it's stupid because it won't last. Either the money will leave you or, or you'll leave your money. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Talked about several birthdays. We've got three birthdays right here, four kids. Four kids, I was there for each of their deliveries. Uh, and I gotta tell you, it was, it was hard being in the, the delivery room. It, it was hard. Uh, when our first child, Abby, was born 16 years ago this past week, uh, the nurses were consoling me, right? Uh, how's dad doing? It was, I gotta tell you, it was hard. It was hard. And when I think about our kids coming into this world, how did they come in? They, they didn't come in with uh, 20s in their hands, right? And the same way they came in empty-handed is the same way each of us are going to leave this world empty-handed. Randy Alcorn very helpfully gives this illustration, this analogy of the end of the Civil War approaching. You're a northerner stranded in the south, the plans to move home when the war is over. You realize the North is going to win, but you got a lot of Confederate money. So what do you do with it? What do you do with all this Confederate money? Well, if you said, I'm going to accumulate as much as I can, and I'm going to hold on to it, I think we would all realize that would be pretty foolish. Why? Because the time is coming where that money will do you no good any longer. You can't keep it. It won't have any value. But what you can do you can send it on ahead. You can store up treasure for yourself in heaven. And that's not just a good idea. That's not just wise. That's what we're called to do. And in doing it, we find that's where our true joy is. Because we have set our hope on God. We're banking on him. Scripture says that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can't take hold of that which is truly life if you are clinging to the things of this world. If you're building your kingdom and increasing your wealth, trying to uh, obtain the good life, you are chasing a bubble. And when you hug it, it will pop. So set your hope on God. Store your treasure in heaven. And then lastly, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So in his final charge to Timothy, Paul refers again to the false teachers who have been in the background, if you will, of the whole letter. He contrasts two sets of teaching, his and theirs. And then two responses, right? Guard the former, turn away from the latter. Timothy is to guard it. He's to preserve it and pass it on to others. In the same way that Paul ends 1 Timothy is how he starts 2 Timothy. 
2 Timothy 1, verse 14, by the, Holy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. The expression can be compared to fighting the good fight. So Timothy is not to pick fights. He's to avoid them if possible, but it's not always possible. And when issues arise and enemies attack, Timothy has to guard what has been entrusted to him. Paul said the same thing to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, 28 through 31, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why? Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So what has been entrusted to us is the gospel, but it's not just entrusted to the elders. We all share this responsibility to guard the gospel. That falls on the shoulders of every member. That's why Paul would say in Galatians, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to these words of Paul. There's some strong language. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Saying let him be accursed is such a strong condemnation literally meaning let anybody else who preaches a different gospel to you go to hell. How do we do this? How do we protect the gospel? How do we guard the gospel? Four practical ways that come to mind. First, know the gospel well. If the gospel is an ocean, don't be content swimming in the kiddie pool. To love God with all of your mind isn't just to read his word, it's to study it. Know the gospel so well that you can quickly spot a counterfeit gospel. I would encourage you, know the difference between imputed righteousness and inherent righteousness. Know the gospel well. Secondly, reject any false gospels. Call a spade a spade. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's not unloving to call out heresy. It is unloving to not call out heresy. Have the gentleness to live peaceably, but also the courage to fight the good fight. Reject any false gospels. Third, take church membership seriously. And by God's grace, I believe we do this require a credible profession of faith in Christ and evidence of repentance from prospective members that want to join. And then likewise, remove members who no longer hold to the same gospel or who turn away from Christ and walk in their sin. Know the gospel well. 
reject any false gospels, take church membership seriously, and then invest in the spiritual good of those around you. That is, build up the herd immunity, if you will, to another gospel by pouring into others the truths of God's word. God has entrusted us with riches, and we are to be good stewards that give generously. But he's also entrusted us with a bigger deposit, that of the gospel, and we must give our lives to faithfully promoting it and protecting it. May God give us all the grace to do that well. Let's pray.